Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. On today's show, the FDA's deeming rules about e-vapor, e-cigarettes, whatever you want to call them, they go into effect today. Some critics of the agency say that this could actually put 99% of e-cigarettes out of business. Is this hyperbole or are these regulations really as bad as people say? Joining me to discuss this are two folks who work on the issue, Lori Sanders, Outreach Director and Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. Lori, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Evan. And Caroline Kitchens, Policy Analyst at the R Street Institute. Caroline, thanks for joining the show. Thanks so much, Evan. So we haven't done a show on this issue in a really long time. It was actually one of our most popular shows, so I guess that goes to show what people find interesting of all the awesome topics we do on this show, like spectrum auctions. But uh, people really seem to like e-vapor and e-cigarettes. And it's been a while. And back in February, I guess, when I had Paul Blair from ATR on the show, we had some hope that there would be a legislative solution to these deeming rules. Unfortunately, as of yet, we haven't had that. So today, August 8th, right? I think it's August 8th. Yes. (laughs) The rules go into effect. So can you guys um, briefly bring our listeners up to speed on what exactly these rules do and why they're so controversial? Sure. So the FDA released its deeming regulations in May, which means that it applied its authority to regulate tobacco products to its e-cigarette products and vapor products. Um, So by doing so, basically there's an arbitrary date of to that February 2007, in which all tobacco products under the C- Tobacco Control Act have to have either have been on the market before that date, or they have to go through an extensive application process called a pre-market review for approval. So essentially, by applying e-cigarettes to this framework, they're saying that e-cigarette products either have to have been on the market before 2007, or they have to go through this arduous application product. Since basically no e-cigarettes were on the market before 2007, that means every single e-cigarette product on the market today, and that's not just for specific brands, it's everything from each type of flavor, each type of nicotine level, every single product has to go through this application process. They have two years to do so, but as many critics have said, it's very likely that the majority of the vapor products on the market will be wiped out entire, entirely because they won't be able to afford the compliance costs. Yeah, and essentially this two-year period, that's only encouraging to people who might be able to raise the money necessary to comply. I mean, it wouldn't be surprising if people just said, screw it, why should I wait you know, two years to go out of business? I'll just do it now because what's the point? And just to clear up for our listeners, there might be some confusion, understandably, because you're talking about the FDA's reg- authority to regulate tobacco. True or false? E-vapor products contain tobacco. False. They contain, they contain nicotine derived from tobacco leaves. So it's quite ridiculous that the FDA is putting a, project, putting a product that's functionally very different from cigarettes, has very different health risks, qualitatively very different, but putting them under this same regulatory framework. And Lori, what is, what, what is the extent of products that would be substantially equivalent to something before 2007? I mean, are we only really talking about those e-cigarettes that are kind of primitive, that look like cigarettes and they're disposable, you toss them in the trash can, but all those kind of futuristic ones where the guy's walking around, he's got little mods and he's you know cleaning them and changing the liquid and all that cool stuff, is that going to be gone? Yeah, that's basically the problem, Evan, is that anything that was on the market before 2007 is incredibly primitive. The things that people vape today are completely different from the things anyone might have had access to in 2007, including obviously the most popular products where you can get interesting flavors, where you can control the amount of nicotine that you're getting in your body. All of that could potentially go away. And I'm glad you brought up the issue of flavors because um, 
not only is there a lot of confusion about whether these products are safer than tobacco or whether they contain tobacco, there's a lot of confusion around this issue. But it seems like a major sticking point for skeptics of e-vapor products is the flavors because they suggest that, oh, why are we trying to make this fun, right? If this is a vice, it should be discouraged and we shouldn't make this a fun thing that people can say, ooh, I like raspberry, ooh, I like blueberry flavor. So many regulators think that the, the key is to make it so that there's only one flavor and they think that that'll prevent kids from getting interested because kids like flavors. Why is it important? that we have a variety of flavors if this is a tobacco harm reduction method and we're trying to get people away from cigarettes. I mean, cigarettes don't come in blueberry flavor. What, what's the big deal? Well, you can think about it this way. If you were going on a diet, you ate too much pizza, you wanted to stop eating pizza, you're going on a diet, you wouldn't want to have to eat the same type of salad every single day. You want the options. Having the options in some cases with e-cigarettes can even make it fun to quit. So the flavors really are an important part of why consumers like e-cigarettes and why people are willing to make the switch from smoking, because the, pla- the flavors make it fun. Are you suggesting that we make quitting smoking fun again? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this legislative push, right? And, and a bunch of uh, business owners, um, tobacco harm reductionists, uh, people who fought against tobacco their whole lives who now think vaping is a good way to help quit what happened with these legislative efforts? I mean, there was one effort to try to get it into the agricultural funding bill. Um, is there also a standalone bill? Where do we stand on the legislative front? And then we can talk about litigation later in the show. Well, so currently there is standalone legislation, H.R. 2058, offered by Representative Cole. It has a lot of Republican support, but I'm sure not surprising, no Democrat support right now. So it also currently is included in the House Agriculture Appropriations Bill. But as we all know, those appropriations bills aren't probably going to see the light of day and we're going to have just a big omnibus spending bill at the end of the year. So it's not in the Senate version of the bill. And that's problematic because it seems likely that given that the issue is a bit controversial, they'd probably pick the Senate language rather than the House language. But, you know, Congressman, if you're listening out there, you can you can go the right way here. And. Part of the problem is, of course, that because we didn't get this done before August 8th, we're now in the heat of the election season and people are probably not keen on spending any type of political capital on this issue, even though it is literally an issue of life or death and you would think that people would care. Well, one of the things that's hard is that there's a lot of misinformation about what happens if these bills pass. So what the bill does is it simply changes the date at which you have to go through the very onerous approval process. It doesn't take away the ability to regulate e-cigarettes, right? We don't want e-cigarettes in the hand of children. We don't want them to be given out on Halloween as kids go door to door. But we do want them to be available for adults who want to quit smoking. And so people think that if these bills were to pass, all of a sudden we would enter this incredibly unregulated, you know, a Randian world where e-cigarettes are going to be flowing in the streets. But it's just not the case. And so it's really important to get the language changed so that the date in which you have to go through an onerous approval process, you know, is more representative of when these things came on the market. And we all know that just because something is illegal doesn't mean a child can't get their hands on it. And if anything, something being illegal makes it more likely that a child can get their hands on it. You do, any, you do any survey of teenagers and you ask them what's harder to get, alcohol or pot? And it's pretty obvious that it's the latter because newsflash, drug dealers don't care about what age their customer is because they're already violating the law. Whereas if you had a regulatory framework that was logical and, and smart, that might actually prevent minors from getting their hands on e-cigarettes. I'm glad you brought up minors, though, because one of, another big sticking point, not just flavors, is this whole idea that e-cigarettes are a gateway to cigarettes. So 
In an ideal world, if you're a tobacco harm reductionist, that's THR for short, you see e-cigarettes as a way to either quit nicotine altogether or at least quit tobacco, which is what percent more harmful or than an e-cigarette? Or what, how, what exactly are we talking about, the gulf between the harm of a tobacco cigarette and the harm of an e-cigarette? So Public Health England has estimated that e-cigarettes are at least 95% less harmful than traditional tobacco cigarettes. So it's often said that people smoke for the, tobacco, for the nicotine, but they die from the tar. Um, and that's the case with e-cigarettes. Since they don't have combustion, they don't have tar, they don't have carcinogens, and they're estimated to be about, they're estimated to have about 5% of the health risks associated with traditional cigarettes. And that's because there's no combustion, and the combustion is what leads to the chemical reactions that produce all these carcinogens, at least in the really harmful amounts. Now, of course, that's great, but if people were to use e-cigarettes and then get attracted to nicotine and then decide to use cigarettes, that would be a problem. Is there evidence to suggest that e-cigarettes are a gateway to tobacco cigarettes? Not really. There's certainly some conflicting studies as we, you know, walk into this very new era with e-cigarettes, but most evidence points towards the fact that it's not. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, there are other products that are on the market that have nicotine in them that are lower use um, or that are um, used in place of cigarettes. And we don't really think of those as gateway drugs either. And part of the uh, one of the problems also is that those other products that have nicotine that are seen as helping people quit smoking, like Nicorette, uh, the gum and the patch, those are not regulated in the same way as tobacco products. The FDA has now created multiple silos where they're saying that tobacco is in one bucket, then tobacco e-vapor products, which is an oxymoron, is in another bucket, and then pharmaceutical smoking cessation products like gum and the patch are in another product. And it seems only logical that we would treat these things in a more medical way, in a pharmaceutical way with a bias towards approval. I mean, all sorts of crazy harmful drugs get approved by the FDA all the time, yet something that's been proven to help people, at, at least in the short term, if not the long term, is being treated in a different way. Are the patch and gum, have they been effective? I mean, is there a reason that they get put in this better bucket where it's easier to get approval than e-cigarettes? Well, you're right that it is illogical that they're regulated in such a different way because the nicotine levels in many cases are very similar in the, in the patch and in the gum as they are in e-cigarettes. But I think it goes to show a lot of the resistance we see against e-cigarettes is because they came out of the tobacco industry, whereas the other products came out of the pharmaceutical industry. So I think some of it is just rooted in a deep set kind of hesitance to, to I guess, embrace anything that comes out of big tobacco. But it's really, really problematic because e-cigarettes are literally the most innovative technology we've ever had for stopping smoking. Finally, we have a product that people love. People are happy to stop smoking. It's way more effective than the gum and the patch could ever be because it also allows people to simulate some of the social aspects of smoking and some of the behavioral aspects. Yeah, and, and we can't dismiss how important it is to have variety, to have flavors, to be able to stand in a circle and use your vape while other people use their cigarettes. There's a reason that the patch and the gum, they have that ceiling on how effective they're going to be because there are psychological elements to smoking. And I'm looking forward to hopefully having Sally Sattel from AEI on the show at some point because she works on this that have nothing to do with just getting your nicotine fix. It's about relaxing. It's about the act of smoking and sitting there and taking a drag of something. And those are kind of intangibles that are hard to replicate with just a nicotine dose. 
Now, um, so you you talked about the legislation. Let's talk about lawsuits. So recently, uh, Tech Freedom and the National Center for Public Policy Research filed an amicus brief in a case where Nick Pure Labs, a maker of e-cigarette liquid, is suing the FDA. Because rather than just, I guess, wait for legislation to come if it might never come, this company sees these regulations as a direct threat to their business model. And one of the arguments they're making is that people will go back to cigarettes if these regulations go through. Um, do you guys think that it's likely that if the FDA's deeming rules remain unchanged, that people are going to throw up their hands and say, screw it, my favorite e-cigarette's not on the shelf anymore, I might as well smoke? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a possibility. I don't see why, given the massive amount of deaths in this country, the economic cost of smoking, we would ever do something that takes a less harmful op- that takes a less harmful option off of the market. I mean, I guess in, in theory, we don't exactly know how people will behave, but for people who are still using the nicotine, for people who are still addicted to nicotine and are trying to ramp down their addiction and consume their addiction in a less harmful way with e-cigarettes, pushing them back towards the worst of all products is just the most ridiculous thing the government can do. And where's the motivation for the FDA here? I mean, if the FDA is supposed to be in favor of public health and their job is to promote public health, and you said earlier that a cigarette or an e-cigarette is 95% at least safer than a cigarette, why isn't the FDA embracing this? I mean, I think that's the biggest question that people have is like, what the hell is the FDA doing? Because this seems crazy. And you'd like to think that they have some sort of, I don't know, a mind of their madness. Like, I don't even know. Like, is what's going on here? <laughs> well, I think Caroline really hit the nail on the head earlier is that, you know, e-cigarettes are something that come out of the tobacco industry. And, you know, we live in this, I'm sorry, just this nanny state where we have this, you know, strong aversion to tobacco and for good reasons, right? I mean, the tobacco industry certainly hasn't earned itself any fans over the last 30 years exactly, but they've come a long way and now they're offering a product that's incredibly helpful. And yet, you know, for the nanny staters out there, whether it's, you know, the Bloombergs or just take your pick in the Democratic Party, You see people who are against this type of choice because they want to control the behavior that people engage in. And they think this is something that's not healthy for them. And therefore, they're ready to just say, we're going to nix it right now. Yeah. And I've heard that retort a lot where people just are not willing to accept that 95% number. And they have a valid point that there's uncertainty, right? Because we haven't really studied nicotine as a standalone thing, right? We haven't just said, use nicotine by itself with nothing else for a long period. And what is the effect? Because it's always been focused on tobacco. But just because we don't know the extent to which long-term nicotine use is harmful, does that mean that we should use this precautionary principle where we just ban it until we can figure it out? And we all know how long the FDA takes. The industry innovated from 2007 until now extremely rapidly. Oftentimes, it takes the FDA just as long to conduct one study. And how do we get over this hump with the just say no crowd? I mean, you make the good point. It's it's the tobacco industry, right? There was a lot of misinformation about tobacco harms. They certainly haven't earned their fans. But I'd like to point out, it's not just tobacco companies. There are companies that have emerged that only operate in the e-vapor space, and they're being, they're the victims of, you know, maybe tobacco's mistakes in the past. And is the problem that the strategy is to just kill tobacco outright. And that's always been the strategy. And now that there's kind of this lifeline, this other product, they can move into a different market and innovate and kind of change their business model. Is that the thing that is most offensive to people who spent their whole lives fighting tobacco? 
Yeah, I, I really think that it's such a new technology. People don't know how to deal with it. They're just trying to force it into these existing paradigms. So there are people that have fought their whole life for a tobacco-free society. And even though e-cigarettes are qualitatively different than tobacco products and less harmful, they don't know how to react except to shove it into that same paradigm. Yeah, and essentially, like you said, I mean, new industry completely different. But if your goal is, if you're worried about normalizing this behavior, again, that's another hypothetical concern we've heard. So, I mean, we've hit on a couple, the flavors, miners getting their hands on it. And now there's this completely hypothetical concern that it will normalize smoking again. I'm not sure there's any evidence to support that. And maybe anecdotally, we can say that, okay, you see more people vaping indoors, so it looks more normal. But people still complain about it. I mean, there's still a stigma attached to it. It's not like vaping is this incredibly awesome thing that everyone sees a vapor on the street and goes, that guy looks cool. I mean, should we really be regulating based on hypotheticals or is there a way to police real harms as they come and judge these things on a case-by-case basis and not put such a burden on companies to prove their products innocent when they are presumed guilty? And this is not rocket science. I mean, you guys have looked at the UK and their approach. How is the UK's approach different from America's approach? Well, the UK has frankly taken a much more common sense approach towards it. Um, And that's not just in e-cigarettes. I think in general across the board, when you look at the approach that public health officials take in the UK versus in America, they're a lot more willing to embrace harm reduction as a principle. And you can see that in heroin, opioid use, and sexual behavior. But for whatever reason, we have prohibitionists living in a fantasy world who think that we can completely eliminate demand for tobacco and completely control it, whereas they've taken a more logical harm reduction approach. And they've, I guess, kind of accepted the fact that people seek and desire nicotine. And while we've had a lot of success in reducing smoking, 40 million Americans still smoke. Uh, The number worldwide is, I believe, over a billion. Um, and if those efforts have plateaued, right, we can only show so many graphic advertisements on TV. We can push out gum as much as we want. We can spend money on education. All of those things play an important role, but if you haven't solved the problem of nicotine addiction and you're treating it as a crime kind of rather than a public health issue, you're going to end up making the same mistakes that we've made with the war on drugs, where we think that we can basically force people to give up something they like and not even justify it. Because in this case, people have said the FDA chair has basically admitted they're not as bad as cigarettes, yet his regulations don't match his rhetoric. I mean, we're kind of living in crazy land here. Yeah, no, you're completely right, Evan. It's totally crazy when you think about the fact that you have 40 million Americans smoke. In any given year, 70% of them say that they want to quit and 43% make a quit attempt. In addition to that, 3,200 kids start smoking every day. You know, I'm the mother of a nine-year-old and I hope that my kid never smokes. I hope that he never vapes. I hope that he never drinks coffee and that he never drinks caffeine and that he's just, you know, the healthiest, happiest boy that's ever existed. But, you know, if he's going to be tempted to take up smoking, I'd rather have these other products available on the market. And in fact, you can get e-cigarettes without any nicotine whatsoever, right? So you really can use them to ramp down your, um, your nicotine addiction over time. To the point where you are, you know, just engaging in the social behavior and hopefully weaning yourself off of whatever, you know, badness might be in the chemical. But, you know, nicotine is, um, most studies say, pretty equivalent to caffeine. And we're not trying to regulate Starbucks out of existence. All right. That's a great point. And uh, caffeine is kind of that accepted addiction. And maybe it makes sense that we accept nicotine as a addiction that is not, that doesn't necessarily have to be harmful 
based on the method of delivering the nicotine. And if we had coffee cigarettes, those would obviously be a problem, but we're not complaining that people drink caffeine because I need it to function, and I'm sure you guys do as well. So um, looks like legislation is not going to be happening in election season. We'll see what happens with this lawsuit. We'll be updating listeners on that. You guys have an event on August 17th at the Rayburn Building here in D.C. on Capitol Hill. You want to tell us about the event and uh, tell our listeners why they should attend? Sure. So if you are in D.C., we would love you to come out to Rayburn. I think it's in B339. Um, Next, what would August 17th be? I'm so bad at days right now. It's on August 17th. They can look it up on their calendars. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But so we're going to be looking at harm reduction and public policy generally. Um, You know, and we just passed an opioid bill. There's still a lot left to be done um, for America's opioid crisis. There's been a lot of work done in harm reduction um, for HIV. And there's also harm reduction work being done in um, in tobacco, including e-cigarettes. So we'll have specialists from each of these three areas talking about their work and what the right harm reduction strategies are and how that relates to federal government policy. And it's extremely telling that you've decided to put those three topics into the same event because that just shows that the lens you put this topic in really influences how people think about it. And you are putting e-vapor and tobacco harm reduction alongside opioid harm reduction rather than having a debate about nicotine. And I guess that's an important thing to frame the issue as we're just trying to help people survive. It's not necessarily about just allowing people to do whatever they want and not having it's this false choice between no regulation and some regulation. Of course, we should have some regulation, but there's a lot of questions about what the FDA is doing here. And this is certainly the most heavy-handed approach I think we've seen in any country. Uh, But that's it for today's show. My guests have been Lori Sanders, Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute, and Caroline Kitchens, Policy Analyst at the R Street Institute. Thank you guys for joining. Thanks for having us, Emma. Thank you. And make sure to check out that event on August 17th. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Let us know what you think of the show. Tell us what topics you'd like to hear and guests you want to see appear on the show. Um, Find this podcast in the iTunes store where you can please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.